And this morning, we also want to talk about last week. I had a time with the Word with Mike, and we usually have our private time, just him and I on a Wednesday. And God really went in during that time about weakness and strength. And one of the things that we realized within the past couple of weeks, within these past couple of weeks, is the thought of God and this was shared, and I do believe this is recorded, that long before there was ever law, legalism, the law, the Ten Commandments, and those 613 statutes and ordinances that are attached, long before there was law, long before there was ever sin, long before there was an angelic host created, long before a third of those angels fell under Satan in Ezekiel, the 28th chapter, and the 15th verse down, and in Isaiah 14, uh, 7 to 15, long before that, long before ever any of that, long before there was iniquity in Satan, long before there was ever sin in any of us, what God had in mind was his precious son and his church, you and I. Long before anything, that was his thought. This is revealed, we can see, really, what goes into it is, is those first two chapters of Ephesians declare what was always mystery in the sense of that it hadn't yet been revealed. The, the depth of the intimacy of God's love between him and his son that he experienced in John 1, 1 in eternity would be to give him a whole race, a brand new race of people, you and I, a whole brand new race of people to be his church in Matthew 16 and verse 18, to be his bride in Revelations 19, 7 and 9, to be his body, flesh and bone in Ephesians 5.30. All had to do, even even beyond the sins that he would come, beyond all of that, was exalting his son. That's what he had in mind. Ephesians, the third chapter, and specifically in verses 3, 4, and 5, declare the truth of that. And I don't know, that's you and I. You and I in the eternity of God's mind through his son. That means he had every single one of us in mind. First and foremost, his thought was his son, but yet never separated from those that would be his bride, his body, his very church. Now, for God to do this, for God to do this, we see that in Revelations 13 and verse 8, in the B part of that verse, he was a lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. He's a lamb. And what does that mean? What does it mean in Hebrews 4 and verse 3 that the works were finished from the foundation of the earth? And that has to do with us, the church, by the way. First and foremost, because we know that was the first thought of God in his eternal mind, was the exaltation of his son. And by that happening, which would involve the father being propitiated, then he was able to give his son as the substitute where you and I would be reconciled. That all had to do 
with glory, with his glory. That was his eternal mind long before anything was. Because if we understand the scriptures, we can see in John 1 and verse 1, for us to understand somehow eternity in the midst of time, because eternity never began. God has always been, and he, and he inhabits it. In Isaiah 57 and verse 15, he inhabits eternity. But for us to understand it in time, he's given us John 1, 1, and he brings us back into eternity. In the beginning, this is eternity. The Word. And the Word with God, that Word with is perhaps the most intimate, affectionate exchange between the Father and Son. And the Word was God. Then we follow it through when you look to the 14th verse of John chapter 1 and you will see it's where it says, And we beheld his glory. The Word became. No, the Word was made flesh. He was always the Word, but then he was made flesh. He put on humanity. And we're going to see what that means this morning. And how... That had to do with the glory of his son and every single thing that we have in him in eternity that far excels anything in time. Although time is a great opportunity in 1 Corinthians 7.29 and in Ephesians 5 and verse 16. Because there's going to be a time when time will be no more in Revelations 10 and verse 6. And so we see the value of time. And so then we see in John 1 verse 14... And the Word was made flesh, and he dwelt among us. It's very interesting what that word dwelt means. And we'll see it this morning. And then it says, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his what? What glory do you think that's talking about? That's that glory that goes way back to that thought of the Father and the Son before there was law before there was a host of angels created, before there was an angelic conflict, before man fell in Genesis 3 and 1, 6, he had that. And it says, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten one, filled up with all that grace and truth is. This is this exchange that the Father and the Son had in eternity and still have in John 1, verse 1. The same was in the beginning with God in John 1 and verse 2. But then he put on humanity. And what does that mean to us? How then, when this is the case and which is a fact, which is an absolute fact, then how then should we, through these scriptures, understand the full preponderance of God's thought about his precious son? And... We can see this, and I'm going to just read a, a few verses here, and then we'll get into what God would have us to have this morning. And the first one that I'm going to read, and these are very, very uh, full of meaning. When we understand Christ and God's heart towards his Son and the glory that he has there, we will be able to understand these verses and not only because they were spoken to other people, but they were also spoken for us. Those, those absolute, all the Old Testament realities in the scriptures were spoken, may have been spoken to certain people groups, 
to them, but they were spoken for us because in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired and is profitable, it says, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, uh, in, in having instruction in righteousness. And so the first verse that we want to see, and this all has to do with, with Christ and what these, these things are teaching us, if we look at verse and Isaiah 2 and verse 3, and it says, Many people will go and say, Come you, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Mountain, always in the scriptures, speaks of God's rule, his government, far above everything. The mountain of the Lord, and then it says, To the house of God of Jacob, and he's speaking to Israel, to them, but this is for us in our understanding. And he will teach us his ways. Well, who is his way in John 14, 6? It's Christ. And we will walk in his paths, the paths that he has walked in ahead of us, each of us as individuals in 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. And we will walk in his paths for out of Zion will go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Again, verse 4. And he will judge among the nations. He will. This is future. This is millennial reign. This has not happened yet. This will happen in Revelations chapter 20 and verses 2, 3, and 4 specifically. It will happen at that particular time with a host of other scriptures that bring out the reality of the millennial reign, God's rule on earth, which was the answer, will be the answer in Matthew 6 and verse 10. And you had to pray, and he taught his disciples how to pray. Jewish disciples, he taught them how to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed would be their name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It is in heaven, he's ruling and reigning. Is he right now on the earth? Not yet, but he will. Millennial kingdom. And he will, in Isaiah 2 and verse 4, judge, rule among the nations and will rebuke many people. This is brought out in Psalm chapter 2, 1 through 12. And, and, and also in Revelations 2 and verse 27. And he will rebuke many people and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Is that going on right now? Do we see that going on on this earth right now? Is that something that will be brought out like never before during the tribulation period? But is it a, is it a sign? Yes, it is. They will not lift, nation will not lift up sword against nations. Neither will they learn war anymore. So there is a time when we're to beat the swords into plowshares in a time for their spears to be beaten into something, into pruning hooks. And then we can see this and what this is bringing out. And now we turn to Joel, and I will read from Joel, the third chapter. Again, he's speaking to Israel, to them, but also for us in our complete understanding of where we are as the church right now, where we are and how close we are to seeing him face to face. 
which is a phenomenal thing, by the way. It's a very positive and phenomenal thing. Now, 3 verse 9 of Joel says, Proclaim you this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. And this is what he's telling him now. And then there's going to be a time when you beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Why? And what does this refer to for us? It says, let the weak say what? I am what? Strong. I am strong. Now, how is all this going to work? First, in God's first thought, God's first thought was his son and you and I in him. Long before there was an earthly people, long before there was a law for those earthly people, long before there was sin or an angelic conflict, he had us in mind. That's why the trivial things in time that gain our consent to cause us to worry are nothing compared to the eternal mind of God. They, they, they don't even, there's not even a way to compare them. There's not even a way to do so. How is, how is this all possible? How does all of this make any sense? Had not Jesus Christ had been made, what? Flesh. A body. Not fleshly carnal nature. Not that in Romans 8 verse 4. That's still in us, but we're not of in Romans 8 verse 9. No, it's not that. It's a human body. And so, how would all of this be possible made manifest this incredible revelation that was between God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son as the Holy Spirit proceeded from both. How would all of this happen? Well, here's where we go to the scriptures again in Luke the first chapter. In verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, we got one downstairs, was sent from God unto a city of Galilee called Nazareth. Please keep in mind, Nazareth, they said, when Nathaniel came and heard about Jesus, and, and he said, can, and what he said was, can any good thing, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth, during the time of Israel's time, was a slum area. That is where our Lord was brought up. He knows lack he understands what it means to be patient and to suffer. He understands it all, far more than you and I ever could. But yet he understands us in it, in our own. He was named Nazareth to a virgin, espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, you that are highly favored. Notice that. You that are graciously accepted, the original says. You are graciously accepted. You are much graced out. Was it anything that Mary did or could earn in herself? No. She was just like you and I. 
She was born with a sin nature in Psalm 51 and verse 5. She's graced out highly. The Lord is with you as a result of that. Blessed are you among women. Not above, but among. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. And cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. In her mind, these thoughts. The angel said unto her, what? That's what God's message to you and I is constantly in Christ. What is it? When God says something, what does he say? Fear not. Why? Because what God says and what he tells us, he's not telling us to do, but to receive. 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 Fear not, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Just like you and I have. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and will call his name Jesus. 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 He is the Christ, the Christos. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give unto him the throne of his father David to rule during millennial reign. But remember, what was God's thought before any of that was his son first and foremost, and then as a result of that, of you and I in him. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. You know, that's a fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 49 and verse 10 and 2 Samuel 7, 13 through 15. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. It hasn't started yet on earth. It is in us because we have Christ ruling and reigning. Hasn't yet on earth, but it will during the millennial reign. And there will be no end of it. By the way, there will be no end of us being his bride. That's brought out in Ephesians 3 and verse 21. Here we are in verse 34 of Luke 1. Then said Mary unto the angel, How will this be, seeing I don't know a man? I have not had any relations with a man yet. I'm not even married yet to David. I'm just engaged. I'm a spouse to him. And I'm a virgin. How is this going to be? How can it be, God? I don't see how things can be. I don't see. Why don't you see? Because you're trying to see in your own thoughts based upon what you think you see and what your need is. Well, the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, just like he does with us. The Holy Spirit in John 16, 13, and 14, he takes the things of Christ, the Word, and shows them unto us. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you also, and that Holy One, which will be born of you, will be called the Son of God. Fulfilling John 1 and verse 14. Listen, that brings out the eternity of God's mind. Amazing when we see that. Now, how was Jesus Christ, when, was he then Jesus Christ, the Son of God's humanity, was that a creation of God? 
Yes. Being that creation of God, God in the humanity of Jesus, the anointed one, that's Jesus' human name, Christus, the anointing, is that's him and his divinity, his divine nature, the God-man. Did he then have to humble himself? Without a sin nature, remember, he did not have a sin nature. He had a human nature. And what is human nature? Weak. Weak. That's right. Where was our human nature created from? In Genesis 2 verse 7, the dust of the ground. And yet breathed into it was the very breath of God. The very breath of God. So did he, without a sin nature, humble himself? He's God in humanity, but he's in humanity now. And what did he do? He humbled himself. Why? Because he was created in humanity. Unfallen humanity, but humanity, what? Weak, still weak. He created him weak. Son of God. And so to understand these things, now we turn to 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 4. It says this. Though, for though he was crucified through what? Weakness. Remember what it says? What it said in Joel 3.10? What does it say in 2 Corinthians 12.9 that Paul had to, to, to declare and what each of us have to? Let the weak say, I am what? Strong in who? He who had all the strength that ever is became weak for you and I. You don't think he understands weakness? Hatred? Pain? Suffering? Being alone? Never without God though. But being alone. Many times he went up into a mountain alone to pray. He was alone because not, not too many ever followed him there to join him in prayer. Remember in the garden in, Luke, uh, in Matthew 26, 41 down through, 38, 39, said, would you even pray with me to his disciples? And what were they? They were fast asleep, asleep in the, in, the, in the world, sleep with being occupied with all these other things. And they couldn't even, he said, you couldn't even pray with me for one hour. <laughs> they were very weak. But yet he was weak. We see it in the garden of Gethsemane in Luke twenty-two forty-four, 44. <clears throat> Experiencing such pressure and pain, pain, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical pain to the point where blood was coming out of his pores. If you want to know what that is like in medical science, you're at the point of death. He was so pressurized. See, no, it's pain. Beyond what you and I ever could. He was crucified. He was, wasn't he? He was crucified through being weak. He cho God chose 
to be weak in his son. Yes, to be, for him to be the father to be propitiated because it had the exaltation and glory of his son first and foremost. But he had you and I in mind. He was crucified through weakness, yet he lives by what? The power of God. Now listen, for we also are weak in him. We are. He knows that. He knows what it's like to feel pain, rejection, to be misunderstood, to be hated, more than any other human being. So we can never say, God, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what I'm going through. No, he did. He tasted, and he did it for even those that wouldn't receive him. Because in Hebrews 2.9, it says he tasted death for every man. That had to do, of course, with propitiation. Making available his precious son to be a substitute that all could potentially be reconciled to him. All because God, who, who is strength, God became weak. For we are also weak in him. But are we what? We're weak, but what? In him, who is the source of all our strength. For we will live with him, what? By the power of God. And when I have that, then I have it toward you. So that's the only way we're to examine ourselves. Are we to examine ourselves outside the power of God, outside of who Christ is in us? Are we? Then should we examine our circumstances and situations and things that we see by sight outside of that? Or did God have in mind the exaltation of his son in you and I in time? Well, of course, Romans 8.31, since God for us. Listen, since God for us, who became weak, chose to be weak, to show us that we can live through him now because he's the power that keeps us. In 1 Peter 1.5. He's the power that rests upon us, not only upon us, but in us. But it can be upon us experientially. But it's in us positionally. In 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9. Just so happens he has to give us thorns to remind us to get our thoughts off of ourself, off of our circumstances, and get into the eternal realities that we are so close to being with him face to face. That's how we're to examine ourselves. Are we in the faith positionally? Do we have all those truths? Then is, it, then is it my circumstance and situations, the things that's going to guide me toward the word of God? Or is it going to be the opposite? It, it needs to be the opposite of that. Get, get to be the opposite. And so he was crucified through weakness Yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But we will live with him by the power of God. Toward you. Now examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. 
Know not your own selves how that Christ is in you except you be reprobates. Now, uh, reprobate is just disqualified. You're disqualified for the race. Really, what this is teaching, though, many will teach this, that God is saying you have to examine yourself to see if you're actually in the faith, if you're actually saved and you're walking right. It's not what it's teaching. This uh, is bringing out beautiful truths. But the Corinthians constantly rejected the, uh, the apostleship of Paul the Apostle. And he had to tell them, well, examine your own selves. Are you in the, are you in the faith? Are you in Christ? Did you, did you receive him as your Savior? And were you taught in him? Then who taught you that? Yes, it was God through a vessel, but who taught you? I did? Well, then you reject Christ. That's what this is teaching. But more so, more so, for though he was crucified through weakness, he lives by the power of God. And he was made weak for who? First and foremost for his father. And then, of course, for us as, as our substitute. He was crucified through that weakness. Crucified. Now, what does this mean and how should we understand this? Well, we have this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14 says, knowing, knowing, knowing here, there's two words for the word know and knowing in the Greek language. One is gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, and the other is epi-gnosis. E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S, epinosis. One means, one means something that God has declared. And what he's declared when we submit to it now becomes a full experiential understanding and knowledge. And that's epinosis. This is what it's teaching us here. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise up us also by Jesus and will present us with you. Verse 15, here we go. For all things are for your sakes. How many things? How should then we interpret the word all? Is there any other way to interpret it than everything that happens? Everything that touches the dot with the circle of God that goes through it? Is that a part of his plan and something that can teach us and reveal things to us? There's no question about it. Was Jesus hungry? Was he hungry? He fed multitudes, thousands, all through the synoptics. He fed thousands and yet he was hungry. He gave much to drink to many people with his very life. And he thirsted, especially like no man ever did on Calvary. He thirsted. He knows what it's like. All things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace. So for all things, what has God given us? Abundance of grace. So what is my mind on? The abundance of the grace or some of the all things that seem to be so bad? Should that be my first thought? Our first thought. And then use the word of God for those things? Or should it be the word of God?
that the abundant grace might through what? Thanksgiving. Is it available for me to be thankful for all things, no matter where I am, no matter what position I'm in, no matter what my circumstance or situation is? Because I have Christ in me, God's very eternal thought, his very eternal thought. Can I be thankful for all things? Can they be your source? No matter what, the, what we're going through? Ephesians 5.20 says yes. Be thankful for all things. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18 says be thankful in all things. Nope. I don't like the way this is. I don't like this thing. I don't like that thing. I don't like this. I don't like that. that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound, and that means go right back to what? To the what? To what? The glory of God. What was God's glory? His eternal mind. The glory of His precious Son. Listen, before there was law, before there was sin, He had His church in mind, you and I. Now can't we, because we, we've been given his, his Son, we can't think that way first. God can't be my first thought, my first words, not what I have and what I don't have, not what I'm going through. I mean, it can't be that. Should that be my first thought, what I'm going through, and then add the word to it? For which cause? Which cause? What is the cause? What is causeless about God? It's his love. Does that have to do with the glory of God? For which cause we, that are weak in him, but strong, faint not. We don't turn coward. We don't give up. We don't lose our grip. We don't allow sight to dissipate absolute dependence in our experience. For which cause we faint not. What, what should it be first, what I'm going through, or should it be the word that we already have? For which cause we faint not. Why do we faint at times? Luke 18, 1. Men, men and women, anthropos, men and women, they should pray and not what? When I depend upon God, when I truly do, through submitting my will, will he give me the grace to endure anything in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13? Without any question about it. We faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward is renewed, what? How? In Ephesians 4.23, through the preaching and teaching of the word, that thing that usually takes last place in our life because we're so occupied with other things that we don't have time. And then when it's brought up, if I don't choose to live by conviction, boy, oh boy, I resist it with negativity and irritation. For our light affliction, do we, uh, the things that we go through, God has considered them, and he understands them, but they're light afflictions. Which is but for a what? That's our, life, our lifespan. Psalm 90 verse 10 is between 70 and 80 years average. It's like a, mo like a moment. It's blink your eyes. Go ahead, blink them. 11 one hundredths of a second. Literally. Blink your eyes. Your life's over and you're with him for all eternity. So let's make more now of time 
than the eternal mind of God. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us. You mean, yes, it works for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. Here's the things. Here's the things that we look to, but we reverse it. Then use the word, watch. While we look not at the things that are seen. Well, I see them. Okay, God, where's your word for them? Come in and answer me. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Because the things which are seen are what? Temporal. Blink your eyes. Now you're in eternity. You know how important time is? You know how important it is to get the word? Do you know how he's made it so available for us? Do you know how he's made it so available for us? You know, it says, Jesus also said when he came, when he came in John 15, 22, he did away with all excuses. Did you know that? Did you know that? Did I know it? He says, they have no cloak. There is no excuse for disobedience. That's what John 15, 22 is saying. Especially for us, the church, those that are most intimately and closely associated with Jesus Christ. There's not one single excuse. I had a man I do have a man who cuts my hair. He's the best barber in all of Berkshire County, bar none. Absolutely no comparison can be made to it. Doesn't matter what anyone says, he's the best. He's been given the highest skill of any barber in Berkshire County. I've been talking to that man about the Lord. Well, his partner there, and I watch him, is listening, taking in everything. A little bit at a time. And I don't go there just for my haircut. I do because he is the best. But I go there because God has told me that he wants to minister to this guy. And, I, and, and so God is doing this with me, with this man. I'm giving him little at a time, little bit at a time. Just like a regular guy. We talk about regular things. and A lot of times I don't use some of the language, although I have, but know that French. And then finally one day I talked to him, you know. And finally I revealed to him, yeah, you know, God has, you know, God has given me the gift to, you know, to speak the word to people, you know. And, you know, I'm just like anybody else. I, you know, I, I tell them, I always say whatever chance I get, uh, I'm, I'm not a religious nut. I'm a nut, but I'm not religious. <laughs> That's all we are in the flesh, right? The fact is, the fact is, I finally talked to him one day and I said, yeah, you know, like we meet on Sundays, you know. And he was kind of like feeling it out and getting a hint, you know. And he said, oh, well, that's one day I don't wake up for anything or anybody, you know, his Sundays. And God's been formulating a thought in my mind to say to him one of these times, which I do want to do. And what I want to say to him is this. Maybe you wouldn't get up for just anybody on a Sunday morning. But what if there was one man that died for you, paid for all your sins, gave himself to you, took care of your whole eternity? Let me ask you a question. Would you get up for him? Tell me, if he actually took your place, what you should have gotten, would you get up for him? Because that man, who is, who is God, put on weak humanity, just like you and I, 
to identify himself with us. And what would you not? And even he would give you the power to get up. Would you do it? Would you do it? Would you get up? No matter what, as best as you could, whatever your schedule was, whatever gift that God had given you, would you get up or would you make an excuse for one who died for you and gave you his life to live so that you that were dead wouldn't have to live that way in death, separated, but live with him? He did all of that. He did all of that. God became weak through Jesus Christ. When you read the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, you will see how the weakness of God is stronger than the so-called wisdom of man. God became weak for us. What is God like? Who do you compare him to? He's incomparable. And Father, we do thank you for your, your gift Gabe and I, we had a time yesterday and we talked about the unbelievable gift that Jesus Christ is. The unbelievable gift. And how he's shown us how we can give and who and what we give to before we give to him. It's brought out in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 to 15. And we, we had that yesterday in a sweet time. His unspeakable gift. It just goes beyond words. Something we'll have for all eternity is our precious Savior in the most intimate way. And did you know that our precious Savior, with every one of us specifically in his mind, cannot wait for us to be with him just so he can share intimacy with us for all eternity. Father, we just thank you. Teach us the great opportunity that we have with time. This great thing. Where Jesus came, the eternal one, entered into time and put on humanity. Put on weakness. And you became weak, God. So that we could be strong in the strength that comes out of that weakness. And that's why the weak can say, I am strong. I am powerful. I'm more than a conqueror, Romans 8, 37. You will see me through this circumstance. You will see me through this situation because Christ is in me. And he's made me already, before I face anything, more than a conqueror in Romans 8, 37. And thank you and praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.